Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. These are decisions that, even though they may not ultimately be responsible for the book's design, they are essentially forcing their publishers to reckon with things that they can't get around. You can't just typeset these away. You have to reckon with Black vision, Black voice, by inserting difference into your standard ways of designing a book. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Evie O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a different book-related question. Today, we're considering a question we addressed in episode 13. This is our first time addressing a question a second time. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> exciting. Yes, very exciting. <laughs> so for this episode, we talked to Kanohi Nishikawa about his study of how book design has influenced the production and reception of African-American literature from World War II to the present. Dr. Nishikawa is an associate professor of English at Princeton. He specializes in 20th century African-American literature, book history, and popular culture. His first book, Street Players, Black Pulp Fiction and the Making of a Literary Underground, was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. He's working on a book now about the effect of book design on African-American literature since World War II. We asked Kanohi about what drew him to the topic, and he described how his interest grew out of research he did for his first book, the one about African-American pulp fiction. He started collecting black pulp fiction because there was so little of it in libraries, and through collecting, he began to focus on design. I love how this connects to another one of our episodes, the episode with Nico Lowry about collecting books and rare books. Oh, yes. So actually, we're connecting to two former episodes in this yeah. episode. <laughs> It's all coming together. <laughs> exactly. Yes, it's all part of our master plan, clearly. Yeah, and I love in this particular case how he's collecting books that are traditionally considered lowbrow. We often think of rare book collecting as collecting something that's now considered a classic and is your rare early edition. But here he's collecting something that wasn't valued enough to have a collection of it somewhere established. So he started his own. I love that. Absolutely. We asked Kanohi if there was a particular book or a series of books that had sparked his interest in book design, something that made him think, wait a minute, look at the influence of book design here. And this is what he said. Toni Morrison, while she was a senior editor at Random House, ghost edited a curious picture book titled The Black Book in 1974. And what I mean by ghost edited is that even though she was responsible for its production, she did not put her name on the project when it was published. And it was a book unlike any I had ever seen. I say it's a picture book, but really it's meant to look like a collection of photographs, ephemera, clippings, as if it were a scrapbook collected by, by a real person who happened to live throughout roughly 
400 years of African-American history. And once I collected the Black Book myself and began to look at it, I realized that there was a kind of hidden history behind Morrison's own writing process contained in, in the very design of that book. And what I mean by that is that tucked away in uh, one of the early sections of the book is a nondescript newspaper clipping from the 19th century that recounts the tragic story of an enslaved woman who attempts to kill her offspring in order to save them from... Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. My jaw is just hitting the ground. I'm like, is it my weird that I'm getting chills? <laughs> oh, so this is I'm... the beloved origin story. This is the beloved origin story. It derives from the work that Morrison did on the Black Book. And why did she edit it anonymously? She published two contemporaneous articles that did sort of attest to her involvement in the project. And in those articles, you get an understanding that Morrison did not want her identity as either an author or an editor to get in the way of readers' experience of flipping through the Black Book as if it were authored by a kind of anonymous person. Remember, I said that she wanted the experience of reading it as though someone had collected these scraps over 400 years of African-American history and delivered it to readers in 1974. And taking her name away from the project, I think, gave readers a more direct impression of that. Can we just talk for one second about the Black Book? Yes. Have you heard yeah. <laughs> I know. We're, sorry to interrupt the interview two minutes in, but <laughs> a pause is necessary. Yes. I, I mean, it sounds so amazing. I know both of us are going to want to run out and get it. Yes. But I did take a second and look at the digital version that Google Books has. It has excerpts. It doesn't have the full book. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if I just read out just no, a little bit No, 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 no. I'm burning with curiosity. It's so interesting. So as Kanohi says, you know, it's kind of like a scrapbook from different times. In the beginning, there are these excerpts from articles and other papers about slavery. And I just want to read a couple of these little excerpts. They come one on top of the other. They're mm -hmm. designed in a very interesting way, as he mentioned. One says, a judge sentenced a slave to be severely lashed for purchasing stolen goods. Before the sentence was carried out, the slave addressed the court, saying that the thief from whom he had purchased the goods was a white man. Then he asked the court if the thief would be punished if caught. Of course he will be punished, the judge replied. Then, said the slave, you must punish my master also. The goods I bought had no parents but my master purchased me knowing I was stolen from my mother and father. And then it says, punishment was set aside. Oh. That's from May 20th, 1788, from the Pennsylvania Packet and Daily Advertiser. God. And then there's another little snippet right below it that says, in 1800, when condemned to die for plotting a slave revolt in Virginia, Gabriel Prosser looked the judge in the eye and said, you only do to me what the British would have done to George Washington had they caught him. 
And then on the next Wait, wait, do they print the reply to that? I'm curious. No, there's no reply. Because that was a complete mic drop of a moment and there is nothing to say (laughs) in reply to that. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's all they quote Mm -hmm. about that. And then on page 12, it says this about George Washington. In 1764, George Washington purchased Jack and a woman named Cleo. In 1758, he got Gregory. Soon afterward, he acquired Hannah and child, Will, and a man with one hand named Charles. It goes on and on then about all of the slaves that George Washington owned. And then it talks about Thomas Jefferson's slaves. Reading people's names like that, and also there's something about hearing you read those names aloud that's very, very, very powerful and right. you know, turns this concept from something abstract to something specific to individuals who were personally treated this way. Right. And then the placement of that information, right? So first you have this reminder that George Washington led the revolt against England and were it not for him, we would still be part of that empire. So you sort of, mm-hmm. he's given as this historical figure in the esteem that he's normally portrayed. And then his hypocrisy is so clearly (laughs) elucidated two pages later. Right, exactly. So obviously, this is just a fascinating book. And the fact that it contains the seeds (laughs) of the origin story of Beloved, it's amazing. Yeah, that's just a tiny excerpt from the Black Book. Um, After we talked to Kanohi about the Black Book, we asked him to give us an example of another book that's been reprinted over decades and how the design reflects the changes in the times. And here's what he had to say. You gave a talk at Duke that's available online, and and Julie and I both watched it, and you gave a talk about Fran Ross's novel, Oreo. That novel has had three dramatically different covers over time since it was first published in 1974. Can you say a little bit about how the different covers of Oreo reflect not just their times, but also maybe their intended audiences? Yes, Oreo is one of my favorite texts to talk about, in part because it's little known on its own right, but it's also got a unique design history, one that really emphasizes the importance of African-American authors becoming designers in and of themselves, because Ross uh, actually designed her own book. And she was able to do that because her business and romantic partner, Anne Grie Falcone, published it. Mm -hmm. Grie Falcone was a celebrated children's book author and illustrator in her own right. But her press, Grey Falcon, was set up as a feminist press dedicated to women's liberation and gay and lesbian issues in the early 1970s. The original cover of Oreo is Grief Falcone's design. It gives you a kind of image of Oreo as a Black Jewish mixed girl through not only her dark skin, but also quite humorously, a star of David around her neck. (laughs) I love that cover. Yeah, there's that plunging neckline, sure. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that cover was the image that we had of Oreo for many years. And unfortunately, the reason for that is because the book quickly went out of print. Gray Falcon was a 
you know, independent feminist press, and it, it did not publish another book. This was really Grief Alconi and Ross's labor of love. Their relationship didn't survive long after the publication of the book, which meant that Gray Falcon couldn't really continue operations. The book is out of print for many, many years until it's revived by Richard Yarborough's series with Northeastern University Press. And when it comes back in 2000, it's given a completely different cover, one that sort of drains it of its color, and instead kind of gives you this woodcut effect yeah. of a black girl who's walking down Lenox Avenue, right? So this is the, the end of Oreo's journey mm-hmm. in Harlem. And you can already see here that the almost sepia tone of this cover is meant to almost sort of canonize Oreo where it had not been in the 70s, if that makes any sense. The choice of design here, the choice of this brownish shades are meant to kind of give Oreo the kind of classic treatment. And this was part and parcel of Yarborough's and Northeastern's effort to bring back forgotten African-American books that didn't receive their due in their time but that in the late 90s and early 2000s would hopefully find a different readership. Would it be fair to say that the second cover is more outward facing in the sense that it's designed to project a certain image, as you said, to canonize the book, as opposed to the original cover, which to me seems to reflect the spirit of the book, you know, the the mood, the tone, the um, maybe the, the heart of the book. And the fun of the book. Yes, in the fun of the book. I would agree with both of you. It's the heart of the book in, you see in Grief Alconi's cover, but it's also the whimsy and the zaniness of the book that is, in my opinion, drained from the reprint. And that's part of the risk of canonization, right? That in some ways you redesign and repackage texts in ways that you think will accord it the legitimation that you want for it in the present moment. This is why being a collector is important. The vast majority of today's readers, particularly in academia, would only have encountered Oreo through the 2000 reprint, Mm -hmm. where this almost sepia tone would have almost conditioned you to read it in a certain way that necessarily detracts from how Grief Alconi and Ross combined to give us this zany novel that retells the adventures of Theseus through the lens of a Black Jewish girl from Philadelphia. Right. Yeah. And you lose the postmodern feeling too. It feels more conventional. Absolutely. Don't you just love that example of these two women partnering with each other, figuring out together exactly how a book will look and how readers will see it, having just complete control. Isn't that just a fantasy? (laughs) Julie, are you asking me, do I love the idea of two women partnering about something they feel passionate about (laughs) and having complete editorial control and production control over it? Yeah, I'd say that sounds pretty appealing. It works out pretty well sometimes, I think, although it it is quite sad. Well, yeah, they broke up immediately after. Let's try not to do that. (laughs) Right. 
And I love the examples of the two different covers that he talked about. We'll include links to those covers in the show notes. And there's a third cover that we'll link to as well. I know you've seen it, Eve. It's from 2015, the cover of Oreo. Mm -hmm. And it's very different from the other two. It's as different, I feel like, from those two as the second one is from the first. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let me just describe it for a second, I guess. It's a very bright pink. And then it's just a graphic display of the word Oreo with a very large first letter O and a very large final letter O. Those are both in black. And then the two middle letters are in white. So it's bold and joyful in the, it's sort of akin to the joy in the first cover, but it's different. It's quite different. Well, I don't know. I'm not sure I agree with you that it's joyful. I mean, it's mm. colorful. Maybe pink is a joyful color, mm. but it, like the second cover, it doesn't capture any of the spirit of the book. Or the people. Yeah. Or the people or the themes or anything. And it doesn't have the playfulness and the funniness of the first cover and the, the allusion to some of the themes or it doesn't do any of that. To me, it just feels like a really cool graphic design. Well, it feels almost commercial. I mean, it, it alludes to the Oreo cookie, right? With the Yes, it does look like a cookie. Yes. Anyway, it's very interesting to think about how covers evolve and what that means about the literature in a particular time. Absolutely. And then after talking to Kanohi about covers, we asked him to tell us more about how Fran Ross used book design to convey meaning and engage with readers. This is one of the great untold stories of Black graphic design in the later 20th century. There's a lot of good media out there right now, particularly in response to our contemporary moment about Black graphic designers' struggle to break into an industry that's been traditionally white and traditionally male. Ross was a trailblazer because she designed her own book and did so with a canny understanding of how typography mattered to readers' apprehension of textual meaning. The typographic elements of Oreo, which thankfully have been retained across its subsequent reprints, although no one acknowledges that Ross was responsible for them. Do you think that's because people aren't perceiving of what she did as design? I think that's exactly right. And this is why I use the language of typography to talk about why textual meaning is so slippery in, in the novel. For example, Ross distinguishes between using caps or regular capital letters and small caps mm -hmm. in the novel. Small caps mean something very particular for her, whereas all caps using regular capitals are kind of weapons that Oreo takes up in order to defeat some of her more notorious or nefarious enemies. So distinguishing visually between small caps and all caps is actually one of the key ways you understand Oreo's journey through Philadelphia leading up to Harlem. It's so interesting. You said something at the very, very end of your Duke talk that Julie and I were both struck by, and we didn't know what you meant. So I want, to, I want to ask you now. You said that texts or books are objects that are meant to read us. What did you mean by that? Black 
authors, novelists, poets didn't ever take it for granted that they were going to be published. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And part of not taking that for granted and just a part of it, it's about understanding how graphic design and the work of marketing a book matter to the way you want your words to be expressed. And part of the history I'm recovering is how Black authors, again, novelists and poets, have cannily used design to speak back to readers, even when the text itself doesn't overtly or explicitly do so. The choices made by someone like Ishmael Reed, who in Mumbo Jumbo gives us a wildly postmodern novel that's part detective fiction, part metafiction. What does it mean that the book is chock full of reproduced images from film, from archival photos, from ephemera, very much akin to Toni Morrison's Black Book. Mm -hmm. These are decisions that, even though they may not ultimately be responsible for the book's design, they're essentially forcing their publishers to reckon with things that they can't get around. You can't just typeset these away. You have to reckon with Black vision, Black voice, by inserting difference into your standard ways of designing a book. Eve, are you as fascinated by mumbo jumbo as I am? I am. I was intrigued after we discussed it with Kanohi, and I haven't read it, but I did go on your recommendation to Google Books and look at it. As Kanohi said, he's playing with book design in every conceivable way and challenging conventions in every way from punctuation to the use of lots of different media in the book. I mean, you name it, he's doing it. And it just seems like a wild ride of a book. Oh, yeah, I love it. And I loved what Kenohi had to say about how by incorporating all of these different elements, he makes it so that the publisher could not ignore Black voices, Black vision. Right. It is a way of taking power. You can't even copy edit this book because he's making changes in punctuation and changes in capitalization that are deliberate. And so this book is being told as he wants it to be told. Yeah. And then Kanohi gave us another example of a Black author who uses design in her work, Toni Morrison. I think Morrison is a perfect example of this in that From her debut novel, The Bluest Eye, in 1970, she was already experimenting with ways of inserting design components into her writing itself. So certain chapters open with a string of text at the top that's derived from these Dick and Jane primers that, of course, our protagonist, Pekula Breedlove, does not see herself reflected in. These primers were written for white American boys and girls. And part of the drama of the novel is Pikula's desperate yearning to have herself reflected in Dick and Jane primers, but lamentably not feeling that that she is recognized by them. So Morrison includes Dick and Jane text, but if you recall, she smashes them together she sort of deforms their meaning by taking very simple learning how to read text and 
essentially taking away the spaces in between words so that they become a jumble of, of non-meaning. And this was something she explicitly included and that her book designer, Richard Gabriel Rummins, had to reckon with in order for the book to get published by Harcourt. We've been talking a lot about books that were written a generation ago or decades ago. Um, how are Black novelists using design in literature today? I think it's always been essential to the African-American literary tradition, but I think it's becoming a more explicit part of their artistic practice in our contemporary moment. I think here of Claudia Rankin's collection of prose poems, Citizen, mm -hmm. published by Grey Wolf, which silently adds names to a facing page list of victims of police brutality. And while the changes have been silent, in other words, they're not announced in the copyright page, if you get any two people starting to talk about this, particularly in a classroom setting where students inevitably have different printings of Citizen, it's readily apparent to all. And the fact that she is continuing to add names to this list is both the power of that facing page layout, but also it's uh, tragedy. It's a living memorial is what it is. I didn't realize that those names changed. I didn't either. I have one copy yeah. of the book. Right, right. How meaningful and powerful. Exactly. And the postmodern writer, Percival Everett, just came out with a book called Telephone in three separate editions, all at the same time. Hmm. Three editions with three slightly different covers and with slightly different endings. Oh. <laughs> you have to compare all three in order to sort of try to understand what he's doing here. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Wait, um, this is a book that's this. I don't know whether to call it a book or these books. <laughs> <laughs> Great point. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. It's even hard to know how to talk about work like that. Um, you're making so clear that this convention in publishing, which is to separate the author from the designer, robs the author of an opportunity. It relegates design to something that's just there to facilitate reading. But if authors have more control over their design, they can use it in ways that just a, a regular for hire book designer wouldn't. They'd be stepping on the author's toes if they did. I really like the way you frame that as an opportunity. And I think it's not always successful and it's not always there for the taking, but the history I'm trying to trace is not simply one of white publishers imposing designs onto black authors, but every now and again, and increasingly so leading up into the 21st century, you see black authors, novelists, and poets seizing those opportunities when they can. Julie. Eve. I have nothing to say that's as interesting as what Kenoe just said. I'm really trying here. How about you? No, I can't. I can't. So how do our kids do it? We have four children, all of whom are college or recent college people, and they have to think and talk at this level all the time. Thank God I'm 50. Like those days are done. Yes. 
<laughs> it was an incredibly rewarding interview for me, right? To be able to engage in that kind of a conversation. But yeah, it was a lot of brain work. <laughs> yes. Well, I hope it was as fun and rewarding for our listeners too. Thank you so much for listening. I think that's it for this episode. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. We're also on Twitter at Book Dreams Pod and on Instagram at Book Dreams Podcast. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website. It's www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to book dreams with Julie and me.